And in case you were wondering, yes, indeed, it was Kitchener's own Helix who is responsible for my appreciation of my rock and roll with a little more edge to it. That's some hard rocking going back to 1984 for that particular track, which I feel like such a rebel when I'm able to play, but more on that in a moment. I'm just going to look through to the other side of the glass and our guy there, Devin Robertson. Phones aren't ringing with complaints yet. We're okay. I mean, it's only 9.06, but I'm getting started on a, a, a dangerous foot, I feel. Nothing yet. So far, so good. So far, so good. Okay. Keep, keep course. Keep course. Course will be kept. Of course, we start with Helix today because last Thursday night, and then we only learned on Friday afternoon after we had signed off for the day. So following the long weekend, we pay a little bit of tribute to Greg Fritz Hines, who passed away from cancer at the age of 68. Uh, Greg was, of course, a member of Kitchener's own rock band, Helix. Rock You, the song you just heard, released in 84, as I mentioned from the album, Walk in the Razor's Edge. And we can be proud of Helix for more reasons than just that they hail from the fine city of Kitchener. Helix spent time on the roads with bands such as Kiss, Aerosmith, Motley Crue, Alice Cooper, White Snake, Heart, Quiet Riot, and you guessed it, Rush as well. Hines joined the group in 82, stayed until 1996, then he rejoined Helix 13 years after that, and he would play with the band up until the spring of last year when he began treatment for his cancer. Greg Fritz Hines passing away last Thursday evening at the age of 68. The reason I feel like such a rebel when I play that song, first of all, I did love it since I was a kid, and then it just makes sense, doesn't it? I'm 13 years old, Rock You comes out, it's got some weight to it that I can appreciate, and it's a band from Kitchener. And lo and behold, fast forward several decades, and there I am attending broadcasting school, and we have a radio station on campus at Conestoga College. At the time, it wasn't an over-the-air radio station. It was heard only in the school cafeteria, and in offices throughout the school. And I was the program manager for that radio station in my final year of school. And it was a rock station because I got to program the kind of music I wanted. And I played that song in our music rotation, and I was immediately called into the broadcast program coordinator's office saying, what kind of music were you playing? Because you see, the folks listening in their offices throughout the college back then misunderstood the lyrics from being give me an R, O, C, K, what you got, rock, I emphasize, because they didn't think it was spelling R, O, C, K, they thought it was spelling something else, else, C, K. If you know what I mean. And then instead of rock you, they think the song is saying bleep you and so on 
and so forth. Of course it's not. Of course it's Rock You. And of course we played it here this morning because that's what we get to do on this radio station. When Kids, when you grow up out of broadcasting school, you get to do whatever the hell you want. I don't know what you were doing for your long weekend, but I certainly know what the greatest hockey player in the world was doing. Here's Nice back in the net in front of the score! Hello! You'll never guess who! Come on, come on, guess! Austin come on. Matthews. Yeah, you did it! You're really good! Matthews to Nylander to Matthews, and a shot by Matthews scores! Here's another chance for the Leafs. Nice with a chance to score. Matthews again. Back to back. Hatties for Maddie. Marner with it again. Back of the goal. Tried to center. He does. And Big Pappy has got the Leafs in the lead. Two to one. Did you count them all? Did you count all those goals from the greatest hockey player in the world today? Not one. Not two. Not even just three. But four goals for Austin Matthews over Two games this weekend for the Toronto Maple Leafs. A hat trick on Saturday in the route of the Anaheim Ducks. Back-to-back hat tricks for Matthews. And then another one in Toronto's win yesterday over the St. Louis Blues. Give Austin Matthews 49 goals. 49 goals on the season. Uh, let me check the math. Hang on, carry the one. That's one less than 50. One goal away from 50 is Austin Matthews. And so we get the chance to play a little AM on AM in the AM for you this morning. And the Leafs have won four in a row. All right, time for your Farwell Show 5 this morning. And it's not just the Leafs, but they're four in a row. The Kitchener Rangers have also won four games in a row. Bruce Stevich at the blue line. Into the slot, Mashar quickly across. Rakoff scores! Second of the game! The Rangers lead 4-2, to and they've got two power play goals today. Well, well, well. Back-to-back two-goal games for Carson Rakoff. And now, Rakoff, with 45 goals on the season, is your new OHL leader in goals scored. He led, basically, from the beginning of the season... Went into a goalless drought of nine games, but now Rakoff, eight goals in his past six, and your very own Kitchener Ranger is once again the leader in goals scored so far this season in the Ontario Hockey League. Number two, on your Farwell Show 5 this morning, Statistics Canada says the country's annual inflation rate fell to 2.9% last month. The sharp decline comes after inflation ticked up. To 3.4% in December. The Consumer Price Index report says the largest contributor to the decline was lower gasoline prices on a year-over-year basis. Number three on your Farwell Show 5 this morning. The Ontario Legislature back in session today after a 10-week break and the Conservatives are expected to announce their, quote, get-it-done 
act. It aims to accomplish several things at once. This is what governments do. Often the opposition doesn't like it because they would suggest things are being hidden inside the legislation. Now, it would ban future governments from setting up a provincial carbon pricing system unless they hold a referendum. It would also set up an automatic license plate renewal system and extend that freeze on driver's license fees. But it would also ban any future tolls on highways, even though there are no such plans by any government or any future government. Number four on your Farwell Show 5 this morning. The mayor of Belleville will host a media conference today to update how the province has responded to his city's cry for help. Emergency services in Belleville responded to 17 overdoses in just 24 hours earlier this month. And number five on your Farwell Show 5 this morning. The province's special investigations unit is probing a police shooting in Kitchener that claimed the life of a 31-year-old man. We'll take a break. Come back with more on the Mike Farwell Show this morning. It is 9.14. You're listening to City News 570. My buddy Ron posed an interesting question on Twitter this morning. Can I still call it that? Honest to goodness with this X nonsense. You understand it better as Twitter anyway, right? Like, whatever. It, on, on the thing, the Twitter, the Twitter mabob, the X mabob, my buddy Ron posed an interesting question or made an interesting point. He writes, the ion train doesn't run in freezing rain once or twice in the winter, and it's news for weeks on end. The train is out of service three or four times a week because horrible Waterloo Region drivers run into it constantly and crickets. I don't know about three or four times a week, but it occurs to me that three or four times in the past couple, for sure, we have had stoppages and disruptions to our Ion light rail service due to collisions. In at least one of those collisions, it was a vehicle running into the train itself. So... Yeah, I can understand where Ron's coming from in that department. I will say again, and this is my reminder to you, dear driver, the train is on a fixed track. Like, it doesn't make any unpredictable moves, okay? So look for the train. If you are driving in an area where there are ion light rail tracks, look around, maybe even look twice before making your next move as a driver because again the trains are on a fixed track they only go one place and it's entirely predictable so be aware of that sort of thing i i would suggest that it becomes news for some time when the train doesn't run in freezing rain because it's expected to run in inclement weather right Obviously, it's expected to run even with vehicles sharing the same roadways. But I guess when you consider the sheer number of vehicles, odds are that there are going to be disruptions because of bad drivers. So point taken that there are too many bad drivers out there either getting into collisions near the train tracks to disrupt them or actually running into the trains themselves. But I don't think it's too much to expect 
that at the slightest hint of poor weather, the train continue running. And and I think it's been a little bit embarrassing, frankly, to see the train get stopped the way that it has for really weather that is not the worst that we have seen in any given winter. But I thought I'd bring Ron's point forward because I think it is fair. Should we talk about it for weeks? Maybe not, but we can talk about it every time that it happens. And again today, we have a vehicle collision that is causing a disruption to Ion Light Rail Service in Waterloo. Let's go to the phones this morning. You know the phone lines open the minute we begin the show. And our friend Andre is with us. Good morning, Andre. Well, you know, after a long weekend, and uh, let's go Rangers, right? <laughs> Mikey, you're so lucky. Three games in a row, correct? Uh, four. No, no, I mean this weekend. Yeah, well, you call that lucky? What about family day? It's good. Yes, it was good because I got to spend my family day with my extended family. I love those boys on the Kitchener Rangers. The coaches aren't bad either. They're all right. I, I, but the boys are better. Yeah. It's like you guys said. They found their mojo. You know, we can't expect eight in a row. Even if they won four, lose one, get four. But the thing is, the mojo's back, and uh, they're doing great. Andre, and- can I say, can, your mojo is very much back this morning. Do you remember when you called me on Friday night? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was, oh yeah, I was falling asleep. I oh, you, you, you sure were. I'm, I'm sorry if my broadcast put you to sleep on Friday night. Thank you for okay. reminding me. Yeah, well, I have to. I gotta, I gotta give you the gears, buddy. Your, your brother, see, you, you know when to put me on the side or put me on the top bunk. <laughs> <laughs> Mikey, it was, a, it was great. The whole team is doing good, and uh, I'm really, uh, really like it. Uh, a, a, a lot of a lot of people are going out to see them, and you know we are so lucky to have them in our community. Um, our community is is amazing, and that's all I have to say, Mike. Is you know I can't wait for Friday. Um, it's just wow, you know that's that's all we can say. And, all right, uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you a question. You got to answer it honestly, okay? Always. All right. Did you take uh, did you take a little something on Friday night to help you fall asleep? Actually, um, I, I cut down. I used to. But, but, but did you on Friday night, though? Did you on Friday night? Out of no, curiosity? No? Okay. No, I smoked, okay. I smoked a lot of weed. That, that's what I thought. That's what I was getting at. So that just puts you in the mood to fall asleep, right? Yeah, I cut my drink, my wine, to only the ga- Ranger game. But this Friday, I smoked too much weed, and I was, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Andre. I, see? The truth will always set you free. And if you missed our post-game show, <laughs> show on Friday night, I said to Paul Fixter, because it's, well, I, I get it. It goes late into the night. But we had just had a pretty exciting Kitchener Rangers game. Well, exciting if you're the Rangers. And they won it in overtime. Matt Sop plays OT hero. Kitchener Rangers have gone to overtime six times this year. And in five of the six times they've won in overtime, Matt Sopp scored the winner. So everybody's pretty pumped up. I know it's late on Friday night, but you're pretty pumped up after a game like that. And then Andre called, and he was he was not pumped up, to say the very least. And so our call ended a little bit abruptly because I had to be honest. I said, Andre, you're not bringing the energy we need for a post-game show after an overtime win. And I said to Paul Fixter during the commercial break, I said, I bet you Andre... Got into a little something-something on his Friday night to put him in the chill zone. And there you go. In Andre's own words, I smoked a lot of weed on Friday night. It's okay, Andre. You do you. And I'll keep trying to keep things pumped up 
for our Kitchener Rangers. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Sixty seconds away from an update in the city news center, and looking ahead at a busy show today with a lot of things happening right here in the community, including a new development in the Preston area of Cambridge that went from public meeting to Ontario Land Tribunal. It feels as though, certainly to some residents, as if steps were skipped along the way. So we'll talk about that just after the 11 a.m. news this morning, about 90 minutes from now. In an hour's time, we're going to speak with a young man who has just finished a cross-Canada bicycle tour. Why on earth would he do that? And what did he learn along the way? That's coming up just after the 10.30 news. In 30 minutes' time after the 10 a.m. news, we're going to speak with an accountant in Cambridge who says the city is being intentionally misleading with its budget. And following this update from the City News Centre, let's talk about theft in Cambridge and what some business owners are appealing for after being victimized repeatedly by these thefts. That conversation is coming up. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News. Council in Cambridge has unanimously supported a motion brought forward by Ward 6 Councillor Adam Cooper, asking that city staff in Cambridge write a letter to all levels of government asking for reform and greater importance on speeding up the court process. This after a series of repeated thefts from businesses in the city of Cambridge. Peter Simpson is the owner of Combined Auto and Truck Repair and joins us for a conversation. Peter, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing all right, thank you. How are you doing? I can't complain. I'm glad to hear it. It's a nice day. You're absolutely right about that, and I like the positive outlook, especially considering what you and your fellow business owners in the area have been going through. Can you share with us some of the experiences you've been facing? Well, uh, yeah, I've always got lots of vehicles in my yard and uh, repeatedly, you know, once or twice a week, uh, people break into utility boxes, damage the vehicles just to steal a drill or something. Um, I have had uh, one person in my shop itself that broke in. Um, And when you do call the police about it, uh, they always just say, oh, it's petty theft, but it's it's petty theft everywhere and repeatedly like i'm on an email group and you know there's just so many businesses out there i do automotive and heavy truck repair but there's storage companies towing companies roofing companies they're all they got fenced yards and the police say oh we arrested that guy last week for the same thing and what's the impact i mean we call it petty theft it might be a drill here 
or another tool there, but there's damage maybe to the vehicles you're working oh, on. Yeah, that's that's just it. There's always damage to the vehicles. Uh, you can't, you don't dare put an insurance claim in, or your uh, insurance premiums go up because they become high risk. Uh, you try to come halfway with the customer. You can't replace everything, but you try to fix up the truck. You know, uh, yeah, it's just a drill stolen, but uh, the damage to the vehicles and then the lack of confidence that your customers have because they they don't want to leave a truck there overnight, uh, you know, and it's just, it's several, several businesses in this area, like all along uh, Franklin, Pine Bush, uh, Sheldon Drive, Bishop Street, Cowan's View, uh, Corydon Place, There, lots of them have fenced yards and they just cut the fences and get in there and they make a mess of everything and take what they want and the owner of the facility is left for the cleanup and try to make things right. Any idea, Peter, what this has cost all of you over time? Uh, for me, it's all little repairs, you know, uh, um, you know, fixing door hinges and locks and stuff like that. But I, I know uh, there's a, a company that does aerial work on the towers, Nabitech. They've had uh, their trailers, uh, you know, all their climbing equipment and everything, and they put some insurance claims in. And now to, ha- to have insurance... Their deductible is now $50,000. That's an incredible number. So what was it, Peter, that led you to Counselor Adam Cooper looking for support here? Uh, it was actually Vic from NABTEC that uh, started the uh, push for it, um, and he met with them. He even hired a private investigator to uh, dig into the theft ring and gave a whole lot of information to Mr. Cooper but uh, I was just shocked that none of the other shops showed up for the meeting. I just happened to go there and be the only one that talked. And, and the biggest thing, it's not about me. It's about all the businesses in the area. And, like, I was the only one that showed up out of uh, 20 people on an email list. But what about the companies that don't even send the emails? You know, like, and, you know, every resident that gets their uh, shed broke into and they get their leaf blower stolen or a lawnmower stolen you know, those are voices that we don't even hear. What would you like to see happen? Based on your experience, what needs to happen here? Uh, people got to be held accountable for what they do. And if uh, if, if they're not uh, held accountable, they just keep doing what they're doing. You know, we pay our taxes and they say they're homeless. And uh, I don't know if it's because they won't get any money out of them when they, uh, you know, give them a ticket. I don't know how they get out so easily. Uh, I guess it's because it's only a $150 drill, but how many drills did they steal that week? Have you spoken to a provincial member of parliament or a federal member of parliament about this or only the city? Just the city. Just the city. That's the first time I, I talked and really addressed it. Are you encouraged by the motion that Cambridge Council has unanimously endorsed here? I I am encouraged. I just hope that, uh, you know, as it moves up the chain, it's taken seriously. You know, because the small theft turns into big theft. And, you know, it's just another cost to small business. We're, we're under a, a tight profit margin as it is, let alone having to uh, repair vehicles for free and, and stuff getting stolen. I get, I get my own stuff stolen, too. You know, I, I come in and I got a shunt truck and all the batteries are stolen out of it, you know. 
So now I spend $500 to put four batteries back in the truck, you know, so that I can do my job. Yeah, and when you talk about small theft turning into big theft, this is also many small thefts, repeated small thefts, and it's like the death by a thousand cuts, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And it is so frustrating because I did have the officers here two Fridays ago, and they're like, yeah, it's like, look, didn't we just arrest this guy last week for the same thing? Um, My neighbor got broke into Active Green and Ross, and uh, he had told me the day before that, his buddy that owns a shop in Kitchener got broke into and they caught the guy and they had caught that guy just three hours earlier breaking into a shop and he got released and he was breaking into another shop the same night, three hours later. Peter, I I feel for you, but I thank you very much for raising your voice on the issue so that we can have a conversation about it. Thanks for joining the show today. No, perfect. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks for your time. All right. Be well. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Peter Simpson is the owner of Combined Auto and Truck Repair. Peter and I connected over the weekend. I've had some time to digest this. And as you might be hearing it for the first time, I would love to hear your thoughts. The the scenario that Peter describes, especially that last one speaking with a fellow business owner in Kitchener where a man arrested had been arrested three hours earlier, it reminds me of stories I've heard from Vancouver, from frustrated police officers when it comes to people who use drugs and they get arrested and they get back on the street and then hours later, it's the same people being arrested again. The whole idea of catch and release. Now, you also know, I've been pretty clear on this, that I think we need some sort of stay-in-your-lane summit when it comes to politics. And so... Sure, council, local council is the most accessible. That's where these business owners in Cambridge have reached. But this is not going to be a local issue. The local council can advocate for it, which is what it's doing. This has got to come from the province and the feds when it comes to our court system and our criminal laws. So how are we going to square this circle? I understand the arguments... I get it. I'm sympathetic to this idea that we cannot criminalize poverty. That doesn't work. We can't criminalize homelessness or addiction. I get it. But when do we start giving a voice to or what kind of voice is allowed these businesses? Because it's pretty darn hard to run a small business when you're getting hit for quote-unquote petty thefts hundreds of dollars at a time several times a week, right? And so when does our unwillingness to criminalize homelessness or addiction or poverty, however we want to describe it, when does that cross over into impacting the livelihoods of other people, law-abiding citizens of our community? It is so tough, and I'm, I'm struggling mightily with it right now. Because I think that Peter and his fellow business owners should have every right to run their business without interference. I think we agree on that too, right? So, again, how do you square the circle? We'll take a break. Come back with your calls on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. 
I am encouraged. I just hope that as it moves up the chain, it's taken seriously, you know, because the small theft turns into big theft. And it's just another cost of small business. We're under a tight profit margin as it is, let alone having to repair vehicles for free and stuff getting stolen. And it does have to move up the chain, right? Cambridge Council has taken on the cause to advocate to upper levels of government. But the problem on the ground is with the criminal court system and maybe even the laws themselves. Peter Simpson, owner of Combined Auto and Truck Repair in Cambridge, says he and several neighboring businesses into the dozens have these ongoing problems with petty thefts, that's how they're described, being carried out by the same people over and over and over again. And the cost to the businesses makes it pretty tough to stay in business. Let's go to the phones and hear from you. 519-570-2545. Star 570-1800-570-5715. Dale, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. How are you? Good. I think I think Peter brought up a good point, and we've talked about it before. We need small theft turns into large theft. That's a proven fact, and we need to change the laws, the Young Offenders Acts and everything. Even a one, two, three strike like they do in the States. Yeah, I hear where you're coming from, Dale, and, and I, I understand that sentiment. I also, I'll be honest with you, like I feel, I do, for these folks who are in such a state that they're desperate to feed an addiction or they are so desperate for any way to make money that this is what they resort to. We failed. We have failed these people long before they started stealing from businesses. The problem is now we're failing the businesses. And we know what that outcome looks like, don't we? So ah, I'm just, I'm really frustrated by it. Mike, good morning. Good morning, Michael. Um, I think this is a multifaceted. One is I understand the addiction and the uh, drug uh, issues and stuff like that. However, if you've been caught 10, 20 times, right, you're not dealing with your addiction issue and you need to go to jail. I'm sorry. But how does jail help you deal with the addiction issue? Well, I think if we can dry them out, if we can, right, because we need them on the do anything. Hopefully they can't get access to uh, all the drugs and alcohol in a jail situation. Um, I'm sorry, if you can't, if you've been offered treatment, you've been offered whatever, and you continue to do what you do, I'm sorry, I, I think society has lost patience with you, and you need to go to jail. The second thing I think what needs is, is uh, straightening out our bail reform. We heard a lot of noise about this several months ago on how they were going to do with repeat offenders and everything else. Um, you know how you said with Doug Ford, get it done? Well, I, I want to have a Larry the Cable guy at the senior levels of government. Get her done. And the third thing I think we need to be able to do is allow people to defend their properties. You cannot expect people in small businesses to absorb thousands and thousands of dollars in losses because of these uh, criminals, whether they're young offenders, addicts, or organized crime dealing with this. We can't have, we can't expect people and residents to put up with this anymore. And you know, Mike, I think the pendulum went all the way too far the one way with, okay, we feel sorry for them. However, 
you have to have some expectations on the addicts and everyone else. If you do not straighten out your life, right? And I was watching some things in a program in Texas while I was in the United States a couple weeks back, where if you are a career criminal, you're sentenced to jail for 10 years. And you know what, Mike? I know it's filling up the jails. I know what the problem is. But, Mike, we need to get... We need people to feel safe on in their homes, their businesses, and the streets again. Yeah, Mike, I, I get that. I do. This is why I find myself so frustrated. I just, I don't know that, you know, you talk about drying out and, and not getting access to the drugs to which you might be addicted while you're in prison. What does that look like? I'm no expert. I'm not. But it's my sense that the prison system isn't the place for that person to be, quote-unquote, dried out. And I don't think we have nearly enough adequate spaces for people to do that, to dry out. I also think it's far easier said than it is done. But I hear the other end of this. I, I get it. Business owners and, and their contributions to the local economy have to be able to continue making those if we want to fund the programs that we need to truly help these people. It, it is a, it's a real tough spot that we find ourselves in right now. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Just ahead of an update from the City News Center, let's squeeze in one more call on the issue of petty theft impacting businesses in our community. Charlie, good morning. Good morning, Mike. It's a great thing you're doing, Mike, getting this out there and getting the people talking about it and, uh, you know, getting, you know, get, hitting the right ears. And, you know what I mean? People just, they look the other way. They don't want to talk about it. They already don't think about it. We got the same problem over here, Mike, riding lawnmowers and bicycles and motorcycles. And it's unbelievable what's going on. I mean, this these poor business guy. I was a business guy in Toronto when I had a garage, Mike, and I was fixing trucks for big rental companies and on. You know, you get a dog. I got a big dog one time, and they told me if a dog bites anybody, I could be sued for thousands. But it's 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 just unbelievable. I mean, these little businessmen, they're the backbone of the community. And, Mike, it's a great thing you're doing. I'm a, you know, I'm a long-time listener, and I don't call that much, but I'll be making a little more maybe. Charlie, I appreciate it. It's great to hear from you whenever you're motivated to call, and thanks for weighing in on this issue. We're going to take a break, get you an update from the City News Center, and then did the City of Cambridge deliberately mislead residents on its budget? We'll talk about that next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News. Sometimes it does feel as though the entire world is upside down, doesn't it? But keeping it really close to home. In the city of Cambridge, the budget announcement was a wee bit upside down. I think that's putting it mildly. I mentioned this to you last week, and it was confusing. And I think, in fairness, concerning the way the city of Cambridge in its own media release about the budget presented that 2024 budget as a 2.58% tax increase when in reality 
the tax increase is more than 7%. The only way that the 2.5 or that the city of Cambridge's tax increase was 2.58% is if you didn't take into account the other pressures on individual residents from the region, school boards, water, etc. And that's the way budgets have been presented to us as a lump sum in its entirety for all of the time, 20 plus years now that I've been covering budgets in this community and elsewhere. You get the whole number, not just a fraction of it. So it leads one to wonder why Cambridge chose to present its budget that way. Just to put it in perspective, city of Kitchener, that came in with an increase of 3.8% this year, would have been at 1.2% if they had presented it the same way that Cambridge presented it. So let's dive into this a little more deeply with Scott Sinclair, who's a chartered accountant and business owner in Cambridge. Scott, thanks for the time. Good morning. Good morning. You have suggested that Cambridge is being intentionally misleading in its presentation of the budget. Why do you say that? Well, I'm not sure that it's intentional. I'm not sure what the motivation is, whether it's uh, error or intention. I'd like to think that it's not intentional. But I do think that regardless of the intention, that it is misleading. Okay, and what makes it misleading? So maybe if you could bear with me for one second, I'd like to sort of walk through the mechanics. Sure. So, so their increase was announced last Tuesday, 7.17% increase for 2024. At, 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 at face value, that's more than double a 3% inflation target. It's actually 2.4 times, to be precise. So to me, that says the city is part of the inflation problem, the high interest rate problem, the high housing cost problem, and not part of the solution. And they say, no, no, no. And here's their argument. That's, uh, thir- that their 7.17% increase is only 36% of the total Cambridge tax bill. As you said, the region of Waterloo is 52%. The school board is 12% for a total of 100%. And 36% of the 7.17% Cambridge tax bill increase is 2.58%, as you said. And I agree with that 100%. It's the conclusion they make from that because they go on to say, and since our 2.58% increase on the total tax bill is less than 3% inflation, you know, we're for all intents and purposes heroes. And I say to that, no, no, no. And here's my argument. If you are 36% of the total Cambridge tax bill, then you're only entitled to 36% of the inflation target of 3%. And that is 1.08%. You are not entitled to 100% of the inflation target. And their 2.58% of the total Cambridge tax bill is more than double the city's 1.08% share of the inflation target or 2.4% times, to be precise. And that is exactly the same 
as evaluating their 7.17% increase on the taxes they have control over to the 3% target. So, in other words, no matter how you slice it, the Cambridge tax increase is more than double inflation. It's not under inflation. It is an interesting argument, and I can certainly follow along logically with the numbers you present, Scott. Look, we all know... These are challenging economic times. Municipalities, when they are purchasing things that help build roads and other infrastructure, are paying more, etc. How would you like to see a city manage its budget in economic times like these? Well, I think you have to start with an overall target. And I I, I don't think you use last year's... uh, expenses and have uh, uh, staff come up with a budget that ends up uh, being approved at 7.17%. I think you have to direct staff and say, here's, here's what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to be part of an overall solution to support the Bank of Canada's target to get inflation down to 2%. Now, can we get down to 2% you know, on a dime? Probably not. Uh, I think there's sort of an expectation that um, 3% is an achievable inflation rate for 2024. So maybe the direction goes to staff, the increase can't be greater than 3%. Please present me information so that we can present a budget which meets that objective. That would be my preferred way of doing it. You know, it's funny. I suggested the same thing in the city of Waterloo when it approved a tax increase of more than 6%. And also in that heroic mindset, it came down from over 7% on final budget day. But I personally didn't think it came down far enough. And I suggested the very same thing. Start with a target of inflation and work backwards from there. Yeah, I think I think for all intents and purposes, um, if you start with a target like that, that's really the leadership we're looking for from politicians. Um, you know, I think for all intents and purposes, anyone can spend, spend, spend. But the real, you know, uh, uh, the real thing that uh, sets people apart is the, the is the ability to manage effectively. And I would say, you know, if you're expecting people to uh, support and buy into a 7.17% increase, then you better have a really strong reason for wanting to be double inflation. And I don't know that we've received that explanation. And so I still say, you know, I think 3% is what's reasonable. Scott, I want to take this a little bit further because we know that taxes are investments in the community and we want to have a nice place to live. But I'm, I'm up against a break. Can you hang on with me a little bit longer and we can continue this? Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. We're going to take a quick break. Scott Sinclair is a chartered accountant, a business owner in Cambridge, and he finds the city's budget misleading, either intentionally or by error. But as he's explained, the numbers don't add up the way the city of Cambridge has presented them. We'll take a break. Come back with more. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. In a nutshell, 
Despite what the city of Cambridge told you in its own media release about the 2024 budget, the increase is not 2.5% and therefore under inflation. The increase is actually 7.17% and more than two times the current rate of inflation. Scott Sinclair is a chartered accountant and business owner in Cambridge and has joined us to share some insight into the budget this morning. I I wonder, Scott, if you were to give guidance to Cambridge Council, where would you recommend it find a place to trim the budget? Staffing. Staffing is, I think, 57% of the total budget. I think based on the numbers I've seen, uh, I'm just going to consult my notes. Uh, I think the staffing was going up... uh, over 8%, uh, and of that 8%, a very small portion was an increase in the actual headcount. So the balance would be an increase to salaries of, I'm going to say, around 7%. And I find 7% to be a very high number, especially vis-a-vis you know, the uh, expectations that have been established through the Bank of Canada. I know one of the other things that Cambridge uh, discussed and added into the budget this year was an infrastructure levy so that it keep up with existing infrastructure needs and help to deal with a backlog. Do you worry at all about the state, the physical aesthetic state of the city, if there isn't adequate funding in the budget? I 100% am concerned about that. Uh, But my response to that is governments are like a business. They have to be competitive. And the expectation of customers, or in this case, taxpayers, is that you need to do more with less. And that's just the tough reality of making progress in this world. The solution isn't spend, spend, spend. It's spend wisely and figure out ways to accomplish what you're trying to do in a reasonable and economic manner. And is doing more with less than including with less staff? Because you were pretty quick to say staffing is the first place you'd start looking for savings. Well, I think the first thing you have to do is look at what the increases are. You know, the conclusion I came to, based on my review, was that the salary increase was egregious. And, uh, you know, if someone else has done more work on the budget than I have, and that's not the case, but I'm fine to be corrected on it. But at the end of the day, um, you know, my feeling is that when you give staff a target, they have to work towards achieving it. My experience, having been an officer in four financial services public companies, is that When you tell staff what you are trying to achieve, it is amazing what they can accomplish. And just as an FYI, the guidance given to staff by Mayor Liggett was a target of a 6.4% increase. And they came back with a 5.76% increase. So they bettered the direction given by Mayor Liggett. But then the infrastructure charge was added. And uh, so we come in at 7.17%. So uh, it, 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 it's a big number. What is it that makes you so engaged in this, Scott? Why are you so passionate about it? 
<laughs> well, um, I think I think people need to get value for the money, and I think the second thing is is that as a resident of Cambridge and as a business owner with a head office in Cambridge, I have pride in my city. But you know, I drive around, and you know, I've been in Cambridge since 2012. I think I've had flat tires every year until I finally said, I can't take it anymore. And I got an SUV and I haven't had a flat tire since. And I don't think the state of roads should be making people like me with, and I have a nice car, get flat tires. And I don't think that medians on roads should have uh, weeds growing up waist high. So, you know, I think that's part of civic pride. Uh, and and uh, I want Cambridge to succeed. I want Cambridge to be successful. I want Cambridge to look great. And I don't want everyone to be bankrupt in order to achieve that. Scott, I really appreciate you making time for the show today. Thanks very much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. Scott Sinclair is a chartered accountant, business owner, as he just mentioned, with his head office in Cambridge, joins us to talk about the budget. As I said in that conversation, I said something very similar when it came to the budget in Waterloo. Start the conversation around a target of inflation. Ask staff. We've great staff across our community doing great work within our various municipal bureaucracies. They will be able to achieve what they are set out to achieve if you give them the target. But absent that target, we end up with increases more than 6%, more than 7%. How about more than 8% in Woolwich Township? And it just goes from there. I believe that we do need to invest in our community. But at times like these, I think we have to be very careful about adding to what is already a significant burden for the cost of everyday life for citizens in our community. That's, that's my belief. Would love to hear how you feel about it. We'll take a quick break. Come back with your calls on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. couple of minutes away from an update in the City News Centre. Let's get right to the phones. Hear from you on how our municipalities are setting their budget priorities. George, good morning. Good morning, Mike. Uh, does David Schooley help people in Cambridge move? Of course. Absolutely. Well, yeah, the reason I'm asking, after hearing what your guest said about how our taxes are going and heavy spending, I might have to call David up. We moved here in the early 2000, and now we're paying double the um, city property taxes that we were paying way back then. It's getting to a point, Mike, where it's just not feasible. We can't keep going down this road. At some point, we're going to have to call it in. George, I appreciate the call. And I do worry about that, especially for older folks who are on fixed incomes. Steve, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, so it's, uh, I think I talked to you about the same time last year about this when I asked you the question, like, if, if cities run like a corporation, like it is now, the city of corporation or the city of Waterloo or whatever, and Kitchener and Guelph, um, we, you know, that makes all the taxpayers here pretty much, you know, members of the board, I guess, and, and 
we don't get any kind of money back. We're not getting any kind of like insight here. They, they, they run these cities into the ground. They cut services, but they don't make sense. And they've never, ever laid off any of their employees. And I, I brought this up, and it's like any other corporation, the first thing they look to is doing more with less. And that usually means cutting back on employees. But year after year, the cities swell with, with new employment opportunities for these people. And then the politicians give themselves raises. And, like, this isn't something that's just, you know, with the city corporations. We see it in the same with the hospitals, right? You get the CEOs to give themselves big pay raises. But at the same time, they're asking for more donations because they can't afford medical equipment and stuff. At the end of the day, it's just, it's got to stop. We can't keep raising taxes on people while we pay for silly things. They keep giving themselves pay raises and stuff like that, and we get nothing in return. It's just got to stop. All right, Steve. Appreciate the call. Look. There is, I, I like the analogy, it's corporation and we're essentially uh, the directors of that board. Every four years, you get an opportunity to change, make a change at the governance level of the corporation council. It's up to you if you exercise that. And, and sadly, very few of us take advantage of that opportunity. An update from the City News Centre. And then, what's it like riding a bicycle from one end of this country to the other. What might you learn along the way? We'll meet a man who has just finished doing just that. Coming up on the Mike Farwell Show, this is City News 570. Well, you know how you sometimes work with people... And then they move on to different things, and there's a company-wide email that comes out that says, best of luck in your future endeavors. This isn't exactly like that, but we certainly did wish this young man well on the next part of his journey when he left us. I'm still upset that he did, but Martin Bauman, back in studio with me here on the show. Gosh, is it nice to see you. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to see you, Mike. I'm still surprised I got let in the building considering when I was working as a morning radio anchor or, or news reporter, uh, I locked myself out of the news cruiser twice on the same shift. I, I, I can't believe that uh, they would possibly let me back in here, but it's, it's great to be back. They, they still had you locked out, though, so that's a familiar that's feeling changed. to you. Yeah. yeah, And here you are back inside. And, and to talk about your book, which is just... Like, that's an incredible journey from leaving here as a morning news reporter to not only writing the book, but the reason behind it. And what Mm. you did, the inspiration for the book, was your cross-country bicycle ride. Can we start there? Why? Why did you do it? Oh, a thousand reasons. (laughs) Um, You know, I think there's something to be said for being 22, 23 years old and looking for an adventure. Um, But there's a lot to be said about mental health, and I think in particular men's mental health. Um, For me, it was a chance to figure out who I am uh, through the course of 7,000 kilometers. Uh, You know what? Depression has touched me as it's touched a lot of people, uh, and it's touched my family. And uh, so I was doing the ride as a fundraiser for Canadian Mental Health Association, uh, the Waterloo Wellington branch, our local branch. They do such great work. And I wanted to be able to do something to make a difference, uh, if I could, and, and raise some funds because they'd help my family. And, you know, I, I think at the time I wasn't really talking about myself and what I was going through, but it was a large part in, in me figuring out who I am and, and how my life had shaped me. And 
um, you know, 7,000 kilometers on a bike gives you a pretty good chance to, to be with your thoughts for a while. You know, it's interesting to me, Martin, and I know you had done work with the Canadian Mental Health Association of Waterloo Wellington, and, and you talk about the difficulty, I guess, with talking about yourself, your own struggles, and coming to understand, mm-hmm. perhaps, what those struggles were all about. Is that perhaps one of the biggest things you've taken away from this, that that acknowledging it? Because we can talk about men's mental health. Mm-hmm. We can talk about mental health issues and the need for more supports in our community. But talking about our own specific experiences sounds to me like it's a much different story. For sure. I think it's easy to talk about things in the abstract or to talk about it in relation to other people. I found that easy. Um, you know, I, I, I was doing the ride and I was talking about uh, my dad and my cousin. You know, my dad has, has lived with depression um, and I was doing that ride for him. And uh, I've lost a cousin to suicide and I was doing that ride for him. And I found it easy and, and convenient and comfortable to talk about them and, and what they'd gone through. Uh, but I wasn't really comfortable in talking about myself. But a ride prompts those kinds of conversations. Um, what we're doing now is another of those conversations, uh, being able to look inward and admit not just when you've struggled in the past too, but I think the hardest thing is to admit when you're struggling in the moment. Um, and that, that ride for me was a, a chance to have a lot of conversations throughout with people of all stripes uh, in every province uh, talking very personally about you know, what they'd gone through and, and hearing their story and sharing mine. And, and that forges community, but it also, I think, reinforces the fact that you're not alone. You know, we know the numbers. Uh, one in five people will experience some form of, of mental illness in their lifetime. But, you know, it touches everyone. It touches every family uh, in some, some way. And um, it was a, a good reminder that we, we are going through the same things, even if we maybe don't share it all the time. I would submit to you from my comfy chair in this cozy studio, Martin, that it is a very challenging thing mentally to do, to embark on a cross-country bicycle ride. How did you overcome those challenges? How did you deal with all that alone time? Um, It depended on the day, I think. Uh, You know, some days I didn't deal too well with it. I think there's something to be said for being... For the bravado of being, uh, you know, a man in his early twenties, and the 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 delusion, if it is that, <laughs> that, that sure, I'll I'll just ride a hundred kilometers in a day, no problem. Um, so yeah, I I, I I I went into the ride not really thinking too much about the the physical challenge of it, but it was it was definitely a physical challenge. I think it was more a psychological toll um, being alone for that period of time, and that really crystallized for me when I was in the prairies uh, and I was trying to ride from Medicine Hat, Alberta to Maple Creek, Saskatchewan. And, and I was caught in the middle of this immense prairie thunderstorm, you know, summer day, first day of summer, I believe. And first the headwinds came and it's 20, 30 kilometer an hour headwinds. And then the rain starts and, uh, and, you know, and then suddenly the thunder and lightning are booming and, you're the tallest thing around on the road. There's, there's no trees. There's no fence posts. There's no like power lines. Uh, that is a that's a different kind of fear than I've ever had before. And and it was so you know poignant to me in that moment that I I didn't want 
I wasn't I wasn't yearning for shelter and I wasn't yearning for the weather to change. I just wanted somebody else to be there with me in that moment. I wanted that moment to be shared and to have to know that I wasn't alone. And and I think that that has since then I've I've never you know, I've I've always thought differently about how much we matter to each other. Um friends and family, yes, but also the stranger you haven't talked to yet or the the neighbor down the street who you maybe know by name but don't don't have conversations always. Like we really are we are all we have and um and there's a lot to be said for community, especially when you're struggling with, with mental health or trauma. Um those things aren't dealt with in isolation. They're they're best handled um in in the presence of love and care. What a picture of that thunderstorm. Uh, on the prairies. Martin Bauman in studio with us. Uh, He rode his bicycle across the country and chronicled it in a book called Hell of a Ride, Chasing Home and Survival on a Bicycle Voyage Across Canada. We continue the conversation. Stay with us on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. Well, he used to be one of us. He was a morning news reporter with City News 570 back when we were still calling it 570 News. But Martin Bauman joins me in studio having ridden his bicycle across the country and chronicling it in a book called Hell of a Ride, Chasing Home and Survival on a Bicycle Voyage Across Canada. You were talking about that prairie thunderstorm you encountered earlier, Martin. This is a breathtaking country. Does any of the landscape, do any of the moments really stand out for you? Oh, all of it, for sure. But, um, you know, I think one place in particular that has become special to me is the north shore of Lake Superior. I mean, for one, it's our our home province, and there's something to be said for for that. But that was probably the the portion of the ride that scared me the most. Uh, I had heard a lot of horror stories about the relentlessness of the hills there, um, about the isolation uh, of of that section. You know, it was a it was a portion of highway, and I learned this in, in writing the book, that was one of the last stretches of, of the Trans-Canada Highway to be completed because of how, uh, you know, relentless these hills are. Uh, there was a, a gap between, I think, Wawa and sort of Sault Ste. Marie that took a long time to close, uh, so I feared that going into it. There's there's traffic, there's bugs, um, you know, horse flies, mosquitoes, all the rest, and they were there. But it was it was breathtaking, um, and and there was something to be said for the people I was with too. I, I had met some other fellow cyclists who were doing the ride, and, and we kind of became a a surrogate family to each other during that portion. So seeing the that endless blue of Lake Superior is something I'll I'll never forget. And I was lucky enough that my wife and I were able to to drive out when we made our move to Halifax. We were able to drive by and, and see it all again, and uh, to share that with her was pretty special. I've had the opportunity to do the, that exact stretch, Wawa to Sault Ste. Marie, as part of one of my annual motorcycle trips. It was highly recommended, much different, of course, on a motorcycle than on <laughs> something that you're pedaling, but it is absolutely gorgeous. Why the book? Was it this a necessary way to kind of complete the journey? I think I had to write this book um, for many reasons. Uh, I think I'm a person that processes things best when I'm writing instead of talking. Um, always have been that way. And I mean, I, I love to read, but I think there was there was a story in me that I needed to write. Um, you know, I, we're talking about uh, mental health and, and depression, but for me, this book is also about trauma and recovery from trauma. Um, and that was 
a, a, a years long process to figure out and and to work with and interrogate personally. And uh, so the the book was a chance for me to think about that, but also talk to experts uh, of all stripes, uh, people who have worked in the fields of post traumatic growth and resilience, people who have who are working sort of in the cutting edge of lab research and depression and how it affects the brain. Uh, just the just the sheer like it's hard to fathom. You know, we have more than a hundred billion neurons in our brain and like the scale of that is is just kind of incomprehensible <laughs> to, to yes. think about uh, yeah how much how little we still understand about ourselves um so uh, yeah maybe, maybe that's a, a roundabout way of getting to the question of why the book but it, i think it's all of those things it was it was figuring out who i am what made me um you know my my nut graph is to to say this book is about uh, the things we carry with us and the things that we learn to let go of. And uh, I think I think it was that for me. It was a, a process of, of thinking about, you know, the things that get passed on. Um, is, is depression in my family genetics? Um, I think there is a genetic component to, to that. Um, but you're also uh, thinking about uh, the events that define you and can you choose how they define you in, in your own way. Was there any point along the way that you thought, that's it, I'm out, quit? Uh, on the bike ride? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I was, I was really nervous early on in the bike ride. Uh, another, another fellow from Kitchener-Waterloo had left and, and was doing the ride a week or a few weeks prior to me, and he gave up a few days in. Um, no fault of his own. Uh, I'm, it was a tough stretch, uh, but I was really worried because he was an accomplished cyclist in my eyes. Uh, I, I felt like a complete novice, and so I was really concerned that if um, you know if if he was packing it in on day three, day four, day five, like was I ever going to make it to Kelowna? Uh, was I ever going to make it past there? Uh, I had portions on the ride toward the end too, being in Nova Scotia and my, my knees are starting to break down and, um, and just feeling kind of defeated and, and lonely and isolated and frustrated. Uh, but then, you know, within that same day ar- arriving in Cape Breton and a driver pulls over on the side of the road and he opens his car window and he holds a bag of cherries out the window for me. It's <laughs> just these strange and unexpected and beautiful acts of kindness that, um, that always seemed to happen at the right time. And there were so many of them, uh, so, so many of them. Uh, you know, a man I met in the parking lot of a grocery store who became really a guardian angel to me. This was in Vernon, BC. He ended up finding, I kid you not, a dozen or more hotels for me to stay in along the way, um, calling them up, telling them about my ride, telling them why I was doing it, and and convincing them to, to spare a room um, for me. And... He didn't know me beyond the, the one conversation we'd had that one morning. And, and he looked out for me for, you know, two months after that. That's uh, a kind of, kind of kindness I can't repay. Um, but those, those sorts of things happened repeatedly. Anytime I, I felt discouraged or, or alone, it was, it was something like that to, uh, to give me the, the boost to keep going. So how are you doing today after all of this, this time to self-reflect to learn about yourself, to figure out what you're carrying with you and leaving behind, going through the process of completing this book. How's Martin Bauman today? 
I, I, I'm feeling pretty good, you know. Uh, it's, it's been a long process of writing this book. I mean, that ride was eight years ago. It'll be eight years this summer, um, which feels like an eternity just saying that. <laughs> it kind of scares <laughs> me how time goes. Um, but, you know, it's, it's given me a, a lot of chances to, to think and reflect, uh, to have some really great conversations with people I love, um, family, friends, uh, and to get to know each other on a deeper level. And uh, that has meant a lot. You know, I've, I've had some of the best conversations I've ever had with people I really care about in the weeks leading up to this book coming out. And um, not just in them getting to know me a little bit better, but in me being able to understand maybe a different piece of their life. Uh, things that, the sorts of things you don't always share with, um, with friends or family or loved ones because, because it's inconvenient or because um, those conversations don't get prompted always, you know. Uh, so I, I, I've appreciated that. And uh, I'm still just, you know, tickled that there's going to be a book on a shelf soon that I can hold up with my name on it. That's um, a dream I've had for years. And uh, I'm, I'm so, you know, proud and grateful and feel so lucky that it's going to happen. I think it's uh, an incredible story. I'm so grateful that you've shared it with us. Where can we get our hands on the book? Well, uh, you can find it at Wordsworth in town. Uh, you can pre-order it from there. You can also find it online. Uh, the book comes out March 15th. Uh, it'll be available at Indigo as well. Um, and, and anywhere that sells uh, local books, a lot, a lot of bookstores you can pre-order it from. Uh, so I'm... I'm yeah, I'm just thrilled for that day to come. Wordsworth is my go-to in town. It's called Hell of a Ride, Chasing Home and Survival on a Bicycle Voyage Across Canada. It's author and a former colleague here at the radio station, Martin Bauman, with us in studio. Great to see you. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Mike. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. It is the halfway point Two hours into our four-hour show. Remember, one hour from now, it's the 12 o'clock talkback hour. We open the phone lines to hear from you, and you get to guide the conversation. That's our final hour together. In about 30 minutes' time, we'll check in with our friends at Habitat for Humanity Waterloo Region and talk housing. And right after this update from the City News Centre, we'll talk housing as well. A new development in the Preston area of Cambridge that... Residents there are calling a gong show. Why? We'll find out next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. I know what you're thinking. It's another case of nimbyism, right? Not in my backyardism. As a proposal for three two-story townhomes is set to be constructed in the Preston area of Cambridge on Tiffany Street near the corner of Tiffany and Dolph. When this was first brought forward... It wasn't just residents in the area that raised a few concerns. Council was also a little put off by what was being proposed. According to 
Councillor Mike Devine, who's quoted in today's Waterloo Region record, this particular development is like putting 10 pounds of product in a 5-pound bag. And yet, the development will go ahead because following a public meeting, it went to the, the developer did, went to the Ontario Land Tribunal for approval, and that's it. It feels as though maybe, just maybe, some steps were skipped along the way. Corey Kimson is the Ward 3 councillor in the City of Cambridge, joins us for a conversation. Corey, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing all right, thanks. How are you? I'm my usual delightful self. (laughs) I'm glad, because there's never a delightfully dull moment in your world, is there? No, it's, you know, it's something. That's that's for sure. We just have to face each day with the happiness that it brings, I suppose. Well, I'm glad to hear it. it. In the case of this development on Tiffany Street, Corey, was there a step, an intermediary step missed here along the way? It seems to have gotten to the Ontario Land Tribunal rather quickly. Well, um, there, there was there were a couple of things that that were missed or didn't happen the way that the the process in a perfect world would take place. Um, we had the planning public meeting, and that uh, that took place. Um, Obviously, last year, almost, you know, almost a year ago, if you will, and that, you know, we were we were very clear with what our what our thoughts were. And that was on February the 14th of 2023. And we had asked the developer to meet with the residents to discuss this. And, you know, Mayor Chan also did speak with the residents to to ask them to, you know, keep an open mind in looking at what might go on the property as as much as certainly a single-family dwelling would be preferred by the existing residents. The way the provincial policy and the legislation and the decisions are being made, that wouldn't be supported. So the idea of having the residents and the developer come together to see if they could talk through this and maybe come up with something that everyone could could live with um, would be great. That didn't happen. And for whatever reason, a report didn't come back to council in time for council to make a decision whether or not we would support the original application or not. And instead, council were notified that the developer had exercised their right to an appeal under the Planning Act for a non-decision and completely removed the City of Cambridge Council from the decision-making process. Is it possible, Corey, that staff is overburdened with work and this kind of fell through the cracks somehow? I, I think that would be be fair whether or not that happens specifically in this case. We know everywhere in the province planning staff are extremely busy as they've been working through all of the changes to the legislation that's been brought down over the past while by the provincial government. That legislation has come forward. There have been changes to it. It's had to be taken from the provincial level and sort of applied to each individual municipality. Um, 
we have had some vacancies in our planning department for one reason or other at the City of Cambridge. We've talked about them before and it's simply something where there's a lot of work and we have to look at how do we how do we get this information through the process, through the system and in front of council in time to make make a decision. And sometimes it's really hard. So what we end up with here at Tiffany and Dolph Streets, it's about a 5,000 square foot parcel of land. And instead of the single family home that had been there or even perhaps uh, the, uh, not not a duplex, but a not a single family home, but a, a semi-detached that could have gone there. Instead, what's going to be there is three two-story townhomes, which goes over and above what municipal planning calls for in terms of density. Are you happy with the way this turns out? Not at all. I'm not I'm not at all happy with this because it has removed council's ability as elected representatives of the community to have input into the decision. Whether the developer liked our decision or not, when it would have been made, they have the right to appeal it even at that time. But we still lost the ability to represent our community and to have input into the decision. Part of what's happening here is something that is not unique to Tiffany Street. The particular piece of land, if you will, was a single family home. It was a corner lot. Somebody purchased it. Somebody severed the lot. So the existing home has now been made into a duplex on a smaller lot. And the remainder of the lot is what's being developed into this uh, three-home townhome. Does the city have any recourse? Do neighbours have any recourse here? Or now that it's done at the OLT, is it done? It's done. Once it it goes to the land tribunal, um, they have the final say on all planning matters within the province of Ontario. And, and that's what has happened. Um, you know, there's also the legislation from the provincial government, and it's something that the applicant planner spoke to at the original public meeting, is that there is policy in place, which they're referring to as gentle intensification, which we could argue define gentle intensification, but it allows three units by right, on each um, single-family lot. So that means that anyone who has a single-family home on a lot is allowed by right to turn that dwelling into a triplex or to add accessory units to that lot, provided they meet with some of the guidelines to do with setbacks and building code and so on and so forth. Those are some of the things that the planners in municipalities are busy trying to work through. What does that look like? How do we allow this to happen in a way that is safe, in a way that is gentle, in a way that works with our communities? So even if a single-family home was put in that lot, in theory it could become a triplex or a single-family home and two accessory units. So the applicant had said... We're, tr- we're proposing these three townhomes to create three-family homes. 
So whether that is better than what else might happen, I don't know. It didn't come back to council, so we didn't have an opportunity to discuss that. Given the outcome here, Corey, that is one that you have already said you're not thrilled with. Residents in the neighborhood have expressed their concern. What what can we learn from this? What are we taking away from this in order to prevent something similar from happening again? Well, thanks for asking that. Um, as soon as this happened and I saw, whoa, what happened? How come Tiffany Street's gone to the tribunal? It hasn't even come back to council. And that's when we learned it had gone to the land tribunal because council failed to make a decision. So I immediately asked the question, who is responsible for ensuring that an application gets back before council in time for us to make a decision? And there's not a lot of time. From the time that staff receive a planning application and deem it complete, it's 120 days for an official plan, an official plan amendment, 90 days for a zoning bylaw amendment, 120 days for a plan of subdivision, and 90 days for land severances. So an applicant could submit an application with all required studies. Once the city deems it complete, they could, they could sit on it. And at that time, after 120 days or 90 days, they could say, no, no one made a decision. We're taking it to the tribunal that would probably give them what they had asked for. So it came back, it came back to council as what are we going to do here? And anyone that watches our meetings will notice that we have now asked staff to let us know when something comes to us that they say when the application was deemed complete and when a decision has to be made. And that's something that we as council have to take into consideration when we're going through this process, because if we know that we only have X number of days before we have to make a decision and we have to allow time for staff to write the recommendation report, then that may cut into our ability to have public consultation or ask for additional information. It's uh, interesting times for sure, especially with the more homes built faster legislation in place. Uh, Corey, really appreciate you making time on the show today to explain this. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Mike. And can I can I throw something else in about something unrelated to this discussion right now? Is that possible? By all means. So as, as we know, um, oftentimes when things are discussed in the media, there's sometimes when perhaps we are misquoted or incorrect information gets out there. And one of the things that we've been hearing a lot about in the past couple of weeks, certainly um, through the budget discussions, has been the um, implementation of a City of Cambridge mobile security team. And I was going to leave it when I was misquoted, but there's been so much miscommunication about it and upset in the community that I really wanted to set it straight with what was said. Um, anyone who wants to listen to the meeting at 524 is when I speak. And it's not what was said about upholding the values of the citizens that I said, but it was more of 
when we're discussing the idea of having this mobile team that is going to have many purposes throughout the entire city, not just the cores, not just the parks, but throughout the entire city, it's going to uphold the strategic values of the city of Cambridge. And by having employees who aren't contract workers, people in our community that we've provided permanent employment to, for that matter, but people who are going to be trained and who are going to be more accountable to providing a better level of service for everyone they're interacting with. And I really want to be clear that it's not meant to be some sort of a, you know, security team or SWAT team, but more of a community ambassador team who are looking to make our community better for everyone that's in it. So I just wanted to get that out there. I appreciate you using this platform to do that. Thanks again, Corey. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Corey Kimson, Ward 3 counselor in the city of Cambridge, and she knows if you want to clear the air about something. This is the place to do it. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. The applicant had said, we're proposing these three townhomes to create three family homes. So whether that is better than what else might happen, I don't know. It didn't come back to council, so we didn't have an opportunity to discuss that. Corey Kimson is the Ward 3 Councillor in Cambridge. The Preston area, Tiffany Street at Dolph, is getting a new development that is not what council or neighbours in the area expected. But because of a lapse in getting a report back to council for consideration, the developer, within their rights, went straight to the Ontario Land Tribunal which ruled in favor of the development, which will now see, instead of a semi-detached home, three two-story townhomes go up on this 5,000-square-foot parcel of land on the corner of Tiffany and Dolph in the city of Cambridge. It's going to allow a density of 65 units per hectare, which is over the maximum density that the city is trying to create of 40 units per hectare. We know we need more housing. It is as simple as that. If I've said this once, I've said it 1,082 times. Get used to your neighborhoods looking different. You heard Councillor Kimson make reference to what is now a single-family home can be converted into a triplex. In Kitchener, and I believe Waterloo's passed this already. I don't think Cambridge has yet, but it can be a fourplex. Certainly in Kitchener, I'm almost positive in Waterloo, fourplexes as of right This is just the way neighborhoods are going to look a generation from now. And to bring it even further, a new development proposed in the city of Kitchener, basically in behind Eastwood Collegiate, um, Brentwood, Jackson, those streets in there, 120 townhouses to replace six existing single-family homes. The renderings look beautiful, but it's a whole hell of a lot more density than what is currently in that neighborhood. And I'm not saying that as a negative thing at all. I'm just saying, again, these, this is how our neighborhoods are going to look 
a generation from now. Get used to it. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. You've heard the old saying, right? Too many cooks in the kitchen. Too many ingredients for the broth. There are a lot of people involved in the process of getting more houses built. And I find myself asking the question all the time. Are we getting in each other's way? (laughs) Is there a rush to be the organization or person that gets stuff built? How about this wild idea? We just build it. What about that? We're going to talk about that coming up with our friends at Habitat for Humanity, Waterloo Region. Let's talk housing on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. Even though it feels like a Monday because we just finished a long weekend, you know it's Tuesday. And you know it's, you know it's Tuesday because I'm here. I'm not here on holidays. I know you love me that much, but I don't come in on holidays. You can't pay me enough to do that. Uh, You also know it's Tuesday, specifically the third Tuesday of the month at 11.30 in the morning when I look through my virtual Zoom screen and see my good friend Philip Mills, who's the CEO of Habitat for Humanity Waterloo Region. Phil joins us on the third Tuesday of every month at 11.30 to talk some housing. Always good to see you, friend. Good morning. Good morning to you. I suggested before that news update with Aaron that sometimes there are too many cooks in the kitchen. We might trip over one another in an effort to get something done or be the first to be credited for getting something done. And I wonder sometimes, Phil, when we look at housing, if that's not a little bit of what we might be seeing. There are so many stakeholders, to use the fancy buzzword that we like so much, that there tends to be inaction instead of action. Yeah, I think there's uh, a lot of, I think it's an insightful thing to kind of point out. We do have so many people that see the value in being involved. And as you add in more and more people, they want more and more things out of their involvement, be it, you know, they need to be at the press conference or they need to be considered in this application and whose name goes in front of who's in which spaces and all of that stuff, you know, will assume well-intentioned and, you know, appreciate the effort people are putting in. So, yeah, they want to be recognized, but it does get in the way. It makes it harder when you've got, you know, when you're trying to, it's like trying to pick a place to go for dinner. You've got six people you're asking. If one person, everybody's got an idea and everybody has an opinion, it's really hard to get out to dinner in the same sort of way. We've got that happening with housing because you've got the opinion of so many different people, so many different tiers of government, you know, the community at large, plus the people you're trying to build for, you are trying to do an awful lot. And all of those opinions can really start to slow things down. You know, you, you put an interesting analogy forward to what's going on currently in and around Conestoga College. I think a lot of people have an opinion on what's going on there, specifically following a a rather wild outburst from the president of the college last week. Setting that aside, you make some interesting points, Phil, in the situation that has been created specifically around housing that is probably, if we're being honest, not all of Conestoga College is making here. Absolutely. Like, that's, like, I think there is that caveat. You are putting aside some pretty important things to say. Putting comments aside, like, 
those, you know, only aside for this particular discussion, they probably need to be brought up in other spaces. When it comes to actual housing, yeah, there are so many actors involved in these sort of things, and Conestoga isn't the reason we're having a housing crisis. The federal government isn't the reason we're having a housing crisis. The provincial government, the municipal government, your local businesses. It's everybody. It's not one of them. And so often what we what I have been seeing and noticing and what I find troubling is the concern is less about getting something done and more about trying to find who we blame. And we just need to get away from that. So there is an argument and you know, a discussion to be had at some point as to how involved and who is responsible as it relates to all of the international students and housing is that, but we are where we are. You know, that was a function of policy, both from a funding level, from a government, you know, priority around immigration. Like there's all of these different factors that created the situation we're in right now. And we also, you know, take into account the 10, 20, 30 years prior that didn't prioritize housing in the way that we ought to have so that we don't have the resources we need now. Like there are so many things that got us here trying to pinpoint any one particular actor saying, this is why if they they are the cause of this issue or if they had not done this rather than saying we are where we are we're in a crisis like finger pointing isn't getting us anywhere because in the end too often that finger pointing from my perspective ends up being a reason why that particular person doesn't need to do anything well it wasn't my fault they did it the government ought to have somebody else ought to have done something i did what i could or i you know this isn't really my responsibility and everybody just kind of points past each other at a certain point, all of us have to step back and say it's not a question of responsibility in that kind of in that particular sense, but like ownership. Like, are we going to take control of our community? Are we going to be leaders in our community and solve a problem, whether it's technically our responsibility? What can we learn, Phil, from our past that may help us find a way forward when it comes to housing? Well, there are lots of times where we've been able to come together. We can look back and we think of. I often hear people talking about a wartime effort, the sort of war housing and bungalows and those sort of opportunities where government and community partners worked hand in hand to get something done and they did it quickly. We have seen opportunities even in the past number of years where when something you know is desperate, is a crisis, government is able to act, the community is able to respond. Like Look back to COVID. How many businesses were able to respond back to the need and say, hey, we need masks? We are making masks. And they transition businesses to make these things happen. The government was quick to release large sums of money to businesses and to their local community and to people in their homes who needed these sort of funds. You think about like CERB and those other things because they were able to action quickly. This was a crisis and we responded. And I think there is, you know, a lot of history of the government and those with resources, you know, business community all coming together to solve a crisis. We just, for whatever reason, can't seem to get behind the notion that this is a crisis that needs to be solved today. It keeps kind of lingering in this thing we're going to get to when we talk about but that sense of urgency that, you know, we are continuing to parse who's ultimately responsible or who's, you know, technically responsible rather than saying it doesn't matter who's responsible or, you know, who is at fault. What matters is we have a problem we all need to come together to solve because it impacts every single one of us. I always enjoy the conversations that we get to have, Phil, because I inevitably come away having learned something. And I have to say, in this case, I feel as though we might be sharing a brain because I am feeling all of these things that you're talking about. I'm looking at all of the stakeholders and I'm thinking, can we just please, pardon my expression, amalgamate our feces here and get some stuff, some meaningful stuff done? 
I believe we have this in us. I think your comparison to how we came together and figured things out during COVID is excellent. How confident are you? I mean, it, I, it sounds like this might be a little bit of a call to action here. Enough of the finger pointing. Let's get to the ditch digging or the, the, the foundation digging if we're talking about houses here. How confident are you that we can we can use this maybe as a rallying point? You know, I, I am confident. I get asked a lot, are we going to fix this? And I am confident because to a certain extent, we have to. You spend some time thinking about the implications of not fixing this. Like that is going to press us towards action. And I don't think that this is... No one was careful. Like, this isn't out of malice. It's not that folks don't want to do this. I think that too often we just get lost in the weeds. We get lost in trying to, you know, like you said at the start, you know, we're looking for either adulation or praise or we're trying to make sure that our name's on this or trying to say again, you know, I talk to my kids about this all the time. Like technically right, kind of, you know, functionally is wrong. Like, yeah, you're technically correct. But that's not actually what I need here. I need you to hear what I mean. I need you to hear and understand. When my son goes down the slide and hits his younger brother at the bottom and says, well, I asked him to move. He chose not to. Yeah, you're technically right that you asked him, but that wasn't really what I intended on this. And I think so often we get caught in the technicalities versus saying, don't go down the slide and hit your brother. Like, we know that to be true. And in this case, don't keep talking about everybody else's responsibilities. Don't keep talking about what others ought to be doing. What can you do? You can only control yourself. And so Whatever the federal government does or doesn't do, whatever the provincial government does or doesn't do, whatever the municipal government does or doesn't do, whatever the college does or doesn't do, what can you as an entity, as a stakeholder, as a person in the community control and action? Because we need to stop worrying about others acting first, about, well, when they come to the table, or if they give what they need to, or it's not really my responsibility. It's a crisis. It's all of our responsibilities now. Like, I think back the other day, uh, I got our car stuck in the driveway, and to be fair, my wife had told me to take the truck and to not drive the car through the driveway, but I thought it was a good idea. And when we got out of the car and it couldn't move, nobody stood there and we didn't spend a whole lot of time adjudicating how wrong I was. We all got together and got the car out because we had somewhere to be. My kids got out and pushed. We dug out the snow because this was something that needed to be addressed immediately. And rather than worrying about pointing blame, because there is time for that. There is time to make sure we don't make the same mistakes. But right now, we need housing and we need people to come together and make that happen. I love this picture of you being stuck in the driveway and everybody pitching in to get you out. Maybe, just maybe, that's the analogy we need to get some housing built and some meaningful progress on the file. Yeah, I, maybe that is that kind of that sense of when it is a crisis. And I think that's the part that I hope people hear every time I talk about housing. Is that, like, If this was a crisis, and it is, and if you saw it as a crisis, how would you respond? Like, Think about, you know, you have an appointment to get to, you have a place you need to be, you have something that has to happen, your car is stuck. You don't then spend the next 25 minutes talking about how you could have, what you ought to have done or how you got there. You dig the car out. You've got time to sort that once you're back on the road, once the problem has been solved, once the crisis is averted. At a certain point, we need to stop trying to adjudicate all the reasons we got here and blame all the right people for getting us here and instead get the car moving, get the housing built. Like We need to get back on track to solving the crisis. Now, we will learn from the past and we should reflect on and understand what caused this. But all of that time reflecting, all of that time considering, isn't so that we stop making better choices or so that we start making better choices. It seems to be one of the biggest reasons why we're not doing anything because we're trying to figure out exactly who to blame and how much so that we can force them to do something rather than so many of us, you know, kind of sitting down and saying, look, it doesn't matter how we got here. We're stuck and we need to get out. So everybody needs to get out and push and we'll sort out the how we got here later. 
It's always a good conversation and definitely enlightening. Phil, thank you very much for being here once again. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. I appreciate it every time. Philip Mills is the CEO of Habitat for Humanity Waterloo Region. He joins us on the third Tuesday of every month at 1130. Let's talk housing on the Mike Farwell Show. City News 570 and Rogers TV. Time for the local business spotlight on City News 570. And joined this morning by Faisal Susiwala, broker of record with Remax Twin City, Faisal Susiwala Realty. Faisal, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? I'm excellent, thank you. Glad to hear it. Can we talk a little bit about the market in the region of Waterloo? How are things looking in the real estate market right now? Well, things are looking very exciting right now, especially with the uh, inflation number coming out this morning at 2.9. That will definitely aim towards lowering interest rates, hopefully uh, by this summer. So I feel there's going to be a definite uptick in the market and a lot of positivity. Uh, People have just sort of been sitting in the sidelines for too long waiting to see what happens. But we're heading towards the right direction now. I had wondered about those numbers this morning and how they would make you feel, Faisal, because I think a lot of us were waiting with bated breath right after a slight uptick in December. We're wondering how are things going to look as we get into the new year? Yeah, very excited about these numbers coming out. And hopefully the trajectory is declining in the in the index, so we'll see what happens in the next few months. Speaking of numbers, here's one that I'm... I probably spend too much time, and if you ask my beloved, she'll tell you. Like, I, I obsess over this way too much. But maybe you can save me some of the articles I haven't gotten to yet in my weekend business section because I haven't yeah, – I, I know it's Tuesday. I haven't even read Saturday's business section yet. But I'm excited because it's got some information around retirement and how much money I might need in order to retire. Can you give me some insight on that? Yeah, it's a big thing for all of us. You know, I, I often think about, you know, how much money will I need to retire? And I think about your your retirement income should kind of replace your annual income or, or the needs that you have each year to live. And that should be 70 to 80% of your pre-retirement income. So here's a general guideline. If you can calculate your retirement expenses, estimate the annual expenses in retirement, including your housing, health care, food, transportation, entertainment, you know, all the discretionary spendings that you may have, because you don't want to stop spending just because you've retired. You want to replace your income. So take into consideration the income that you have, such as CPP, you know, any of the government pension plans, work pension plans, any rental income you may have. Then look at the gap. Subtract your expected retirement income from your expected expenses, and you'll have an idea of how much savings you need to have in your retirement. So here's the rule that I would follow, and it's called the 4% rule, which suggests withdrawing 4% of your retirement savings annually to sustain your lifestyle throughout retirement. So an example of that is if you need $100,000 per year, multiply that by 25, which equals $2.5 million. Now, it may seem like a whole lot of money here, but if you if you take that $100,000, multiply it by 25, that means you need $2.5 million in retirement savings so that you can withdraw 4% from the age of 65 to the age of 90 to comfortably have $100,000 a year uh, to retire on. And so if we, we need less, that means the savings are a little bit less. But that's a good... And what makes that the kind of magic number, Faisal? So, 
so it, it just you're looking at you know depending on you know I know you're a very young guy so you've got probably 20 years before retirement here but let's say in at in 20 years if you figure you're going to need a hundred thousand dollars a year to to take a vacation drive a car live in the house you live in not change your lifestyle be able to do the things that you enjoy doing without having to give up things so now if you say look I only need fifty thousand dollars a year to live off of once I retire well then you need 1.25 million dollars saved up by the age of 65 in your retirement account so you can withdraw four percent of that annually, which allows you to live 25 years off of your retirement saving. So that's that 4% rule. Yeah, it's you know what? It's a good rule to keep in mind. And the earlier you start, always the better, right? Absolutely. I, we talk about TFSAs, the uh, FHSAs, RRSPs, GICs, all of those acronyms that we hear, like learn what they are, know what they are, and start investing so that you can retire comfortably and not have to worry about how am I going to replace my annual income. Faisal, it's always good to have a chat. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Take care. Faisal Susiwala joining us, broker of record and Canada's top REMAX agent with REMAX Twin City, Faisal Susiwala Realty. Don't forget his book called The Real Deal, and you can give Faisal a call anytime at 519-624-5555. The Local Business Spotlight, where your business comes first on City News 570. And we are back with just enough time to bid farewell to our friends at Rogers TV Cable 20. Robert and the entire team at Rogers TV work very hard producing the TV portion of this show every day from 10 until noon. I certainly appreciate it. I hope you do, too. Thank you to Robert and the team. They will be back tomorrow from 10 until noon. Remember, we continue on City News 570. And if you want to have a chat, this is the place to do it because it's open phone lines coming up during the 12 o'clock talkback hour. So you get to choose the direction of the conversation. Start one yourself. I'm here to listen, respond. Maybe we'll kibitz. Maybe we'll actually argue. Who knows? The 12 o'clock talkback hour is coming up following this update from the City News Center. You're listening to the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. And so long, Rogers TV. Take out the papers and the trash. Just finish cleaning up your room. Let's see that dust fly with that broom. Get all that garbage outside. Or you don't go out Friday night. Daggity Don't go back. Well, let's just do that, shall we? Let's talk back at one another. Let's talk together. You get to lead the conversation, though. Every day from noon until one. With our 12 o'clock talk back hour. Bring something to the show. I'm sure to have an opinion on it. 519-570-2545. Star 570-1-800-570-5715. An email from Colin to Mike at 570news.com. Hits pretty hard. Everyone wants more houses built. Yes, but that's not going to do anything about prices. When we had a vehicle shortage, prices went up. Now we have a steady supply of vehicles. The prices have stayed the same and not come down. Groceries have done the same. Prices will continue to grow for housing, groceries, and vehicles unless something is done 
and put in place to cap these prices or regulate them. We can't afford to live, man. That's the part that really gets me. I I don't know that I agree necessarily. I mean, supply and demand tells us that the greater the supply, the lower the demand, and thus the lower the price. However, when you say we can't afford to live, man, I feel you, Colin. I do. So I appreciate you sharing it via email. And we're going to keep getting through this, right? It all is not lost. Everything is not broken. Tough times for sure. But we're going to have some conversations. We're going to ask hard questions. We're going to get through this. Let's go to the phones. Start the 12 o'clock talk back with you, Sean. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I heard the way you said my name there. Sean. It's almost like (laughs) Newman. Yeah, I know. know, (laughs) I, I was thinking, like, I heard people complaining about the tax increases and all that. But I remembering back a couple of weeks ago or a month, uh, how many of those people complaining about the tax increases wanted the region and the cities to spend money on the symphony to keep it going? The money comes from the same place. It, you know? it is a question of priorities. You're not wrong. Yeah. You know, like, I can see spending money on social services, housing. But in all honesty, in the crisis that we're in today... Um, I mean, as much as I hate it, uh, music has to take a back seat to people living. Uh, listen, Sean, I get it. Again, it all becomes a matter of priorities. Yours will differ than mine. Mine certainly differs from some of our councillors and council members. I will just remind you of this. If music be the food of love, play on. And I will say it and say it again. I love music. I love what the arts bring to our community. I love the vibrancy that's associated with it. It's a better life when it's filled with music and theater and things like that. But that's that's my priority. Jersey, Bill, good afternoon. Yeah, you know, in terms of uh, what we have to worry about, I, lots of times I buy the uh, German magazines. I sort of read German on a kind of moderate level, <laughs> not entirely fluent, but uh it just struck me. I just got both. I usually don't buy both. The Spiegel, which sort of is what life used to be, and uh, no, the Spiegel is like is like Time or Newsweek, and Stern is what life used to be. And on the Stern magazine, there's a cover of of Biden and a Walker. I don't think he's that bad yet, but that's the way people are playing it. I mean, even even the uh, late night comedians are starting to say he's too old. He's too old. It's it's just working its way through the. Uh, through the minds of everyone, and of course, on the other, on the Spiegel has uh, Trump, and he's saying, uh, "I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to defend you." Essentially, which is what he said. Uh, what he says, he said to a leader who said, "Oh, if we don't go up with uh, more money for our own defense, are you going to stand by the NATO uh, agreements?" And he said, "No, no. Well, Russia can come in." So, boy, what a choice we have to make there. I, I'm, my hope is that you know, if Biden really is. Uh, sort of uh, reaching to po- the point of uh, not being totally able, as much as I like him, I would like to see him step aside, but he's going to do it quickly in order to have a legitimate process to uh, to replace him. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the uh, the vice president has already been attacked just for being who she is, so perhaps it might be best if she stood aside too and allowed one of the governors or one of the senators to move, uh, to make the move to uh, get that nomination in its place, because they certainly, if they presented a, a strong progressive uh, 
and uh, sort of uh, not crazy uh, agenda, they would stand a very good chance of defeating Trump and all his troubles. Billy, can we be honest, though, here for a moment? It doesn't matter which side of the political ledger you find yourself on in the United States. You're screwed with either of these guys. And I'm sorry, like strictly on age alone, if this is the best America has to offer, we're all in deep doo-doo. Yes, unfortunately, what it was is that, that Biden was turned out to be the default choice in the last in the last election. I I I, uh, I certainly I would have preferred had he been able had his son not died and had other things not occurred that he would have been the nominee in 2016 rather than uh, Hillary Clinton. And this might be then had he been successful both times, this would have been the end of his second term, not the end of his first. But it, it is what it is. I. Uh, uh, it, it's it's funny the way that that, that either a standing presidential candidate or, or this one, a former president with a great following in his own party, uh, can really uh, stand in the way of, of all of the people, regardless of age, just just because of the the power that is projected from his having been president or actively being president. Billy, I appreciate the call. Excellent use of the word "actively" being the president, because I'm not sure how active. Joe Biden is. And I'm sorry for how ageist that is. I am. But we got to be honest about this. I, I love you, America. But the, the, the two men running for the presidency of the United States in 2024 are establishing a new record for oldest candidates. And they are currently the record holders as being the oldest ever to run. Like, what are we doing, America? What are we doing? I don't quite understand at all. Uh, Gotta take a break. Jeff, Grant, and there's a line ringing in for you and you right now if you want to be a part of the 12 o'clock talkback hour. It's on the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. The talkback hour is a chance for you to clear the air, you start a conversation. We had a city councillor from Cambridge use our show to do just that earlier. Wanted to make clear something she'd been misquoted on earlier. That's what the show is for. Let's get our stories out there. Let's have a conversation. 519-570-2545. Star 570 and 1-800-570-5715. Jeff, good afternoon. Good day, sir. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Uh, it's another day in the neighborhood. boy. Uh, two things. Quick note at the end, uh, but uh, it was in regards to the thefts was the one. Uh, about six months ago, uh, the night before, I had uh, unlocked my truck door so my granddaughter could grab something, forgot to lock it. About one thirty in the morning, it got broken into in the sense of they opened the door and went through my truck. Problem is, it was uh, 17 and a half minutes they were in my driveway going through my truck. I uh, made a report the next day, went through my cameras. I gave them the exact times. I watched the person five doors up housewise going up everybody's driveway, checking everybody's car door. Uh, got to mine, did that, and then watched them go to the uh, neighbors up their driveway and back down. 
Now, he stole my wallet and all my credit cards. Um, and I ended up uh, about two days later finding out that they had used my credit cards at a company and ordered almost $1,900 worth of stuff. I started tracking, tracing. I sent videos to the police. I even got the address of where my stuff was going to be delivered to from my credit cards, and nothing happened. Um, On the quick note, your silly putty talking last week, there is a good use for it. I use magnetic chargers for my iPads, my phones, and I use the silly putty to take any dirt or magnetic stuff that's gotten on the end of the cord off. Nice. So there's another use for it other than comic. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Thank you. I appreciate you ending on a light note. I'm so sorry to hear about what happened and the effort that you put into it, sadly, to no avail. And I, where do you want to start breaking down the breakdowns? in that story not the least of which is near the beginning with somebody going up and down driveways in a neighborhood looking for easy access to the interior of vehicles been there my friend it's happened in our neighborhood on many an occasion it's very unsettling and i i wish i could give you more comfort from it but and you know the flip side of that is if the vehicle is locked sometimes you end up with more damage by somebody breaking into the vehicle. I'm going to knock some wood so far. I haven't had that happen. The vehicle remains locked, but oh, it is just unsettling. I, I feel for you. And okay, Silly Putty is not just for the Peanuts comic anymore. And you put that Silly Putty over the comic and all of a sudden you've got a comic strip in your hand. All right, we continue the 12 o'clock talk back. Good afternoon, Grant. <laughs> I know I'm in trouble when it starts with that laugh. Mikey. Granty. Uh, yeah, I want to touch on two things. Okay. Uh, it was kind of neat what the uh, Peterborough Pete do for the kids. It's called, and they mentioned during... Uh, the next gen game. Yeah. Yeah, we, we had one of those in Kitchener like a month ago. Maybe uh, a little bit more, yeah. I think that's kind of neat that these little fellas get to say speech to the uh, players. I didn't like it because there was this gaffer that was going to, he was so good at my job, I thought he was going to take it away from me. Well, why not? Well, I'm not done with it yet. Well, then you better get better. All right, I'll get better. I'll try. And I can't pronounce that player that we got rid of. Harmerl. Harmerl and Mitchell Martin, are they both overage? And they are. Why didn't we get rid of Mitchell Martin, and keep Hamara. Uh, Hamara, not overage, but Mitchell Martin is. And with Hamara gone, we were able to bring in another import, who is Edward Chalet. Okay. All right, there you go. See how it all falls into place? It was kind of a difficult situation then. It's either get that Chalet person and get somebody... Well, it was a difficult situation for the Kitchener Rangers with Tomas Hamara as well 
because he wanted a greater role. He wanted to play some power play time, etc. And there wasn't room for him to do that in Kitchener. So he asked for a trade and it was granted. All right. All right. That's it. Okay, Grant. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. And yes, it was the next gen game in Peterborough while we were there yesterday. Do you remember Coach Cal, the kid that gave the pregame speech and it went super viral to the point the kid ended up on Ellen? He has his own WFCU commercial here in Ontario. The kid was a viral sensation. I haven't seen any. Coach Cal's emerge from yesterday's Peterborough Pete's next gen game, but it's always fun when you get the next generation involved in the game like that in various aspects. They have fun, we have fun as the previous generation, the older folks, and it brings a great deal of energy to the game. We'll take a break, come back with more on your 12 o'clock talk back hour. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Every day between noon and one, we give you the opportunity to steer the conversation. 519-570-2545. Star 570. 1-800-570-5715. Back to the phones we go. Mark, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mike. Um, I heard you talking to Andre this morning. Yeah. Um, is he a neighbor of mine? Is that where I'm getting all the skunk smell from? <laughs> I I don't know for sure, Mark, but I'll tell you why. I I felt a little bit, just a little bit of guilt, but not a ton, because on Friday Friday night, after a thrilling, an absolutely thrilling Rangers victory in overtime, Andre, God bless him, called the post-game show, and he sounded like he was half asleep. And and so I, I ended the call prematurely, and I said, I'm sorry, but we can't have... Like, you just don't sound energetic enough to be on the show tonight after such an exciting game. And I mentioned to Paul Fixter during the commercial break of that post-game show Friday night that I think I think Andre got into a little something. And when he called this morning, he admitted that he smoked a lot of weed on Friday. Yeah, I heard that. Um, but that's okay. That's okay. It is. I, yeah, absolutely. It's okay. For sure. Go ahead. Um, I, listen, just don't I drive. Just don't drive. Now, i got a question for you, Mike. Yeah, okay. I always have questions for I you. I know you do. I want me to just get my Google ready for the answer? No, no, that's okay. Okay. Um, I, I'm really surprised that Sop has scored five of the six overtime goals for the Rangers. It's a pretty neat stat, isn't it? That's a good stat. It is. Now, my question is, Mike. Okay. Has an NHL team um, uh, picked him up? No. He went to a Leafs development camp in the summertime, but that was it. He has not signed. He is not drafted. Okay, Chief, uh, he's a great player. Uh, I'm thinking he should get picked up by someone. What do you think, Mike? Well, I think if he keeps working hard, he's going to get another chance this summer to at least go to a camp and try to earn a contract. Okay. Okay, Mike, thanks for that. And uh, Andre, take care, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Mark, thanks very much. I'm not an expert at all. You know my story and my relationship with cannabis, but I'm told the best part is there's no... There's no hangover. There are no ill effects. So I'm sure Andre just woke up feeling fine on Saturday morning. On Friday night, though, he was not bringing the energy we needed <laughs> during Rangers talk. John, over to you on the 12 o'clock talk back. Good afternoon. Hi, Mike. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good. I'm good on this sunshiny afternoon. Atta boy. 
I was just talking, well, last night, talking to a buddy of mine, Clark Pollock, and that Pollock name may be synonymous uh, in that Junior C circuit, the uh, Provincial Junior Hockey League. Uh, it was Clark Pollock's uh, work and dedication to to the game where they named his, uh, or the division up here in Northern Ontario, after Clark Pollock. But I was talking to him, the, uh, people might know his son, Kevin, who is an NHL referee and was just about to retire on April 7th after 25 years. He got hit in the game on, I believe it was Sunday. Yes, it was Sunday uh, against uh, the Buffalo Sabres. And it looks like that may have ended his career prematurely, though he was going to retire. So I just wanted to, you know, we're always praising the uh, the hockey players, but uh, Kevin had a 25 or just about a 25-year career. He was to retire April 7th, 24. So what do we got? About six, seven weeks left. It looks like his NHL career is over. He's still in Buffalo. He's having an MRI done today by the NHL doctors, but it looks like uh, Kevin's career is over at this point. I'm sorry to hear it. Yeah, you know what? So am I. I I'm going to. I was going to be doing in March a little uh, interview with him. Uh, you know, so the people up here in the Concordian and Bruce County would, uh, would find out a little more. But I'm not going to bother him until he uh, uh, has some recuperation, both physically and mentally, because I know this is is going to bother him. He was really looking forward to that date, April seventh of retirement. So, but you know how we're always picking on referees, but uh, Kevin is a good one. Yeah, he is. Uh, John, really appreciate that. Thanks for the call. Take care. You as well. And John answered the question I was going to ask when he talked about up north here. I'm like, where would you be up north? Are you there right now listening to the show? And there he said, on the beautiful shores of Lake Huron in Bruce County, some of my favorite places to hang out. I'll be honest with you. When I first heard the name Pollock, what came to mind for me is Carl the founder, the the guy who created CKCO-TV here in town, was the president of Electra Home, and that was the parent company to what was then, a way back when, for people of my vintage, CKCO-TV, channel 13, right here in the region. All right, uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to get you an update from the City News Centre, and then... We continue with the 12 o'clock talkback hour on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. We were talking about an hour ago with Philip Mills, the CEO of Habitat for Humanity, Waterloo Region. And he shared a story about his kids and asking his kids to do something. And we were talking, of course, when Phil was here about housing. We do that with Habitat for Humanity Waterloo Region on the third Tuesday of every month at 1130. If you're keeping track of these things at home, because obviously there is not any issue, in my humble opinion, as big as the housing issue in our communities today. So we have these regular monthly chats with Phil and he shares this story about talking to his kids. And I thought, you know, when it comes to solving or getting serious about solving housing, maybe that's what we all should do. Or maybe our kids should be a part of the conversation. My kid, a little older than Phil's kids, who are still young and running around on playground equipment, ours is about to embark on a post-secondary career, very much entering her 
young adult years. And I think people of that age should be at the table and be involved in the conversations about housing and what it looks like because they are the generation that is having a heck of a time even thinking about someday owning a home. And I reflect on that when I get this email from Clinton, who I really think is on to something here as he gives thought to the whole problem around housing. Uh, Clinton writes to Mike at 570news.com. I'd like to think I'm a knowledgeable guy, but I can't understand why the government has not looked into these as options to help the housing market. They say that housing demand is down and that it's damn near impossible for first-time home buyers to enter the market, such as myself. Why doesn't the government reinstate the 0% down payment for first-time home buyers and increase the amortization period that someone can spread the payments over? Some countries have mortgages upwards of 50 years or more because they look at owning a home as a generational home. After all, it's becoming very common for multiple generations of families to live under one roof nowadays. If they did those two things, I truly believe it would spur a huge housing boom, even with the higher interest rates. As one of those individuals who wants to buy a house, but it's damn near impossible to save up for the down payment while paying these exorbitant rental prices. If we do these two things, I could buy a starter home tomorrow, and I wouldn't care if it meant my mortgage was spread over 50 years because I'd be happy to just own a home. Interesting idea, Clinton. My only concern, just as... A person with a mortgage is I don't love the idea of people being indebted to the bank forever and ever. Amen. And that's what 50 year amortizations do. Heck, even the 30 year amortizations make me a little bit uncomfortable. But I grew up in a different time and I certainly am. I will be the first to admit debt averse. I do not like you debt. and You cannot make me like you, Sam. I am. So I don't love that. But the point's well taken insofar as multiple generations under one roof and the idea of a generational home. The home of yours today becomes your child's tomorrow because you're all living in that same space forever and ever, amen. And so you might as well just keep, you know, the bank can just prop it up. I don't know. I don't love that part of it, but I get where Clinton's coming from. Interesting idea, anyway. Let's go back to the phones on the 12 o'clock talk back. Walter, good afternoon. Good afternoon there, Mike. Um... Mike, I was down in Detroit on the weekend, went down there for a volleyball tournament. Uh, I've never seen one so large in my life. There had to be well over 400 teams there. But um, everybody's talking about transit around here and stuff. One thing that I did notice down there that we use actually quite a bit, it's called the People Mover. Have you heard of that thing down there? I've heard of the People Mover. Indeed, I have. Yeah, and, and not only that, it's free. (laughs) <laughs> so everybody uh, is always talking about transit around here it's an elevated thing it looks like a monorail kind of thing there's not even a driver on it it's uh, run from a central location and it just goes around in Detroit and has all these various stops and you can just hop on and hop off and I thought it was the coolest thing I've ever seen but uh, I've never seen so many volleyball teams in my life in one location. It was amazing. And there were some real ringer teams there. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, 16 and 17 and 18 youth that are like fully sponsored, like by Nike and Adidas and, uh, and all these big 
outfits. It was uh, quite the experience, Mike. Walter, I'm glad to hear it. Thanks for sharing. You know, that people mover makes me think about our transit experience in Pittsburgh over the summer. And when we were looking at the options for the subway, we realized that we were in the downtown ring or something like not the ring is not the word, but we were in that area anyway. And transit was free. You could hop on the subway as long as you stayed within that downtown ring. You get on, get off, whatever. So we were going to a concert over at, uh, oh, what do they call it? The former Heinz Field, Acrisure Stadium. And we went to get on the subway because we were in that downtown area and it would have been FREE free, which is one of my favorite things. It was so jam-packed that we decided we're going to hoof it. And we're lucky that we could. It was only a couple of kilometers, blah, blah, blah. But I get where you're coming from with the people mover, and I think it is an excellent idea. It can find itself, though, overrun in terms of capacity. But here's one of the great things about it being an elevated people mover. It's not going to get stopped by vehicles running into it or vehicles running into each other around the tracks like happened to our Ion this morning, right? Pretty cool. All right, we continue the 12 o'clock talkback hour. Shannon, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I just uh, have to share a funny story. Um, on the weekend, I had my grandkids, so they're four and two. And my husband and I do not have a streaming service. Like, we're old. You know, they think we're old, I guess. <laughs> and so anyway, they're watching something on TV, and then the program's over, and Elena said, well, Grandma, I want another episode of that. And I said, well, that isn't the way it works, honey. You just have to take whatever comes on and our two-year-old grandson just turned two on saturday took the remote mic handed it to me and said just say netflix mom or grandma (laughs) (laughs) i love it so when when our daughter and son-in-law got back they're only 30 and 32 they i was telling them and my son-in-law was laughing he said now that makes us feel old because they grew up in a time when you just watched whatever it was on TV, right? It's <laughs> so true. These kids, they have no idea, Shannon. No. Right? Like, you just tell, talk into the remote control, it will play what you want. No, no. Yeah. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that story. That's a great story. I remember, like, vividly, I was a newspaper carrier, I've shared this with you before, for what was then called the KW Record. Every Friday, the TV Times was a part of the KW record. I used to have to insert it into the paper, make sure all my customers received it, and I'd get home from delivering. It was an afternoon newspaper at the time, and then I would take the TV Times from our house and go through it so I could see when my favorite shows were on. Not I knew what time they were on because I had it memorized, but what the episode was going to be about that week because I had a little synopsis in there, and I could get all excited for the A-Team on Tuesday and Knight Rider and the Dukes of Hazard on Friday and the Thursday night lineup and et cetera, et cetera. You had to wait for the shows to come on. You couldn't just watch one show after another show after another show on demand. What what fresh future is this anyway? Great story, Shannon. Thanks for sharing it on the twelve o'clock talk back hour as we continue on the Mike Farwell show. City News five seventy. Let's get right back to the phones so we can hear from you. That's the whole idea of the talkback hour. 519-570-2545. Star 570. 1-800-570-5715. Phil, good afternoon. 
Good afternoon, Mike. I'm phoning in regards to uh, the mortgage and uh, housing topic you you mentioned. Yeah, zero percent down and fifty year amortization. Yeah, yeah. I have a brother in law who, for decades, he lives in the United States. He's lived in Pennsylvania, Louisiana, and now Florida. And he always says he can take his mortgage payments and put that towards his income tax, and it's recognized that way as a deduction. Could you imagine what that would be as a catalyst for if they did that here? I remember when I was renting, we could use a portion of, like, we could claim our rental payments, too, and it was some part of your income tax filing, but I don't know that it's for, well, yeah, I, I couldn't imagine if we did that for a mortgage, no. Maybe one of your learner listeners uh, could expand on that and say, yeah, that is true. So, yeah, that would make things a lot easier for a lot of other people. Phil, I appreciate the call and the idea. We do have a number of learned listeners and guests on this show. Perhaps we will explore a little bit further this idea. Over to you, Joe. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Mike. I was going to call in earlier, uh, but I really just not in a mood to bitch and whine. But uh, well, you're in a uh, mood now. Other, well, I, I know <laughs> one of your other callers just it made, compelled me to call because on the weekend my wife uh, made me watch a documentary. The after she was sick and tired of me watching sports all day, so um, uh, just things that date you, um, things that show you your age. We watched. Being Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, I wanted to watch that. I came across it. I thought of it. Yeah, it looks good. Wow. You know, you really know your age when when you remember episodes of Mary Tyler Moore <laughs> and, like, Carol Burnett and stuff like that. Yep. These kids, they, they don't even know what quality television is. Good anymore. point. Um, it just isn't like the writing was back in the day. Even though there's so much you, you couldn't say back then or do. They uh, they push the boundaries and really open it up for everybody. But man, watching uh, Mary Tyler Moore with my old man, that takes you back. That's some years, man. Anyway, have a good one. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate that. Uh, I loved it because it was in a television newsroom. Lou Grant as the grizzled old boss. Ted Baxter as the main anchor man. Oh my goodness, we could go on and on. And then the Carol Burnett show. Harvey Corman, Tim Conway. What an ensemble cast Carol Burnett had. And funny as H-E double hockey sticks. Oh, my goodness gracious. Got to take a break. Back with more 12 o'clock Talkback Hour continues on City News 570. Ladies and gentlemen, Rob Snow is in the building. Getting set for Now You Know. Taking you till 3 o'clock this afternoon. Let's show him how it's done before we turn over control to him, okay? Continuing the 12 o'clock talkback hour, Grant, good afternoon. Thanks for the opportunity, Mike. It's a pleasure, sir. I want to make a little comment uh, about uh, the callers and their problems with theft today. Yeah. And especially to that, (laughs) I guess I go back to that ear from your last caller. Back then, Mary Tyler's, uh, they, I would say that's when our legal system uh, had some common sense. 
to add to that, my theory is uh, I would place most of the uh, this theft thing to at the feet of the judges. I think our our police and our society do their best, but when somebody makes a mistake once, okay, when it comes to theft. When they make it twice, they haven't learned their lesson because they got off too soft. So they do it again. So they get off the second time. Third time, no way. Throw the book at them. (laughs) Okay, Grant, a little bit of a tough-on-crime stance there. And look, one thing upon which we will certainly agree, there are myriad problems system-wide that have led us to where we are today. And the gentleman who spoke with us on behalf of dozens of businesses who say we are being stolen from repeatedly by the same people and we need help here because it's really hurting our business. Rick, I got just under a minute, but it's all yours, my friend. Hey, my friend. How you doing, buddy? Great, thanks. How are you? Um, well, good. I, good. Um, the cap, the uh, thing with the mortgages in the States are deductible, but then they probably have to pay capital gains when they have a gain on their home. That was years ago. I'm sure they haven't changed that. That's the first thing I sure. thought, too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I was really wanted to call about yesterday. What a great, great place to watch a hockey game in the Peterborough Arena. Oh, my that, goodness. The that, history it oozes from the rafters. Place, that place is sweet. Loved like, it. N- not too big, you know. Great views everywhere. The restaurant area, that was funky. And then the, the, the staff. The staff was over the top, and we had our ranger stuff on, so they were, like, over the top helping us get over here, there, and, you know, they got us through to where we had to sit and everything. But, yeah, no squared corners. Like, you, can't, <laughs> you, you cannot visualize that. Without, like, that is really a cool place. So, it, it anyway, is. good seeing you yesterday, and all good, and glad we're all home, and uh, we'll talk maybe another time. Like, it's been a while since I've called, but we'll call again. Don't be a stranger, my friend. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. Uh, Love seeing you at the games, especially on the road. There's nothing like a familiar face when we're away. Saw a lot of Rangers fans in Peterborough yesterday. Glad you enjoyed the experience as much as I did. Got to go. Now you know with Rob Snow is coming up right after this update from the City News Center. Devin Robertson is our guy on the other side of the glass. My name is Mike Farwell. Hey, Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev on this show tomorrow. You won't want to miss it. Stay with us on City News 570.